You're listening to the Big Speak Podcast, a program populated by the voices of thought leaders, successful CEOs, and renowned entrepreneurs. We'll hear their exclusive tips, behind the scenes insights, and off the record stories. Pieces of knowledge only available from Big Speak's unique slate of keynote speakers and business leaders. During these episodes, we'll meet just a few of the best speakers in the business, learn their unique skill sets that enabled them to inspire audiences on the biggest stages in the world. Inspiration begins now. Hey, welcome back to the show. Um, Mike Walsh, our guest today, is a top innovation and futurist speaker, best-selling author, and IoT expert. He's the CEO of Tomorrow, a global consultancy on designing businesses for the 21st century. The best-selling author of Futuretainment and the Algorithmic Leader, his current book, and publisher of the Disruptive Future blog, read by thousands of professionals. He was recognized as one of Australia's top 30 entrepreneurs under 30. And then rather than focusing on the distant future, Mike focuses on the next five years. Mike, welcome to the show. It's great to be on the show, although it was considerably a long time ago when I was 30. <laughs> Those kinds of awards are the ones that are nice to know that you were showing some promise early in life. You know, there's, there's nothing better than child actors and child prodigies, because as we all know, they do so well in their mid-40s. <laughs> that, yes, this is, this is known. One might say that you're on a mission when you look at the, the, just the volume of work that you've done, but I, it feels more like this is a life calling to understand and make sense of the future and then to help those around you figure out what to do. Is that a fair way to put it? I think to call it a mission is maybe to imply more uh, structure and purpose than what is really uh, a curious and over-imaginative mind that's been allowed to go out of control. You know, about about 20 years ago, I, I essentially decided not to lead a normal life and really follow my curiosities and interests. And, you know, I I had actually trained to be a lawyer. And people often ask me, how do you become a futurist? And I say, a good place to start is to fail at doing other things. Uh, So I I abandoned a path of going down a professional route. Uh, The internet was happening. This was the first internet boom in the late 90s. I I started internet companies. I lived in China. You know, I I basically did everything I could to avoid responsibility. And once you have liberated yourself in that respect, there's no going back. I uh, frequently say that I I wouldn't be hired by anybody. I'd make a terrible employee. It sounds like uh, we we get along in that. You, um, You know, there's there's quite a bit about you on speaking of the internet on the internet you're quite prolific you've you've written a lot you have your own podcast tell me we're on a podcast we can be meta for a second uh, what got you into podcasting and talking to other folks uh, it was a combination of two things the first thing is though as you say i write quite a bit writing is excruciatingly painful like it, it, it's it's a very difficult process writing something, especially if you're a very harsh self-critic. The beauty of podcasting is that you're capturing a conversation, which is natural. It doesn't get edited in the same way. And so that was, first of all, like a great way for me to kind of bring my ideas to life. Uh, but the second real driver is that I wanted people to try and understand a little bit about my process. Uh, 
you know, not to disparage futurists, but there are a lot of people who essentially are just curating ideas that are floating around the internet, stuff they've read on TechCrunch or other blogs or seen on TED. And what I wanted people to see is that almost all my ideas, my research, uh, the kind of frameworks that I've put together have actually come from thousands and thousands of original conversations I've had with crazy scientists, entrepreneurs, people you know in remote markets like Brazil or India, and I've kind of synthesized all of that. So in a way, I started the podcast as a proof of work. I wanted people to see the journey that I, I've, I've taken, and I wanted them to come along with me. I just finished reading How to Think Like Leonardo, and he suggests that you have a skeptic in your crew. And I'm curious, when you look at the future, are you, do you look at it uh, optimistically, or do you see a dystopian future? Are you a skeptic? I, you know what I try to do is, is actually neither. I think the most important thing when you're trying to analyze our current society, which is actually the real job of a futurist, by the way, it isn't actually looking too far ahead. You've got to try and look at it without the colored lens of whether this is good or bad. You've really just got to try and understand the complexity of the forces and how they interact. Uh, because, you know, I was in, I, I started this week in Moscow. And What's amazing, from the perspective of California, looking at Russia, you know, it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like Pal Palin looking at Russia across Alaska. It's terrifying. Uh, you know, you kind of imagine that all these people are just scheming, waiting to like rain nuclear weapons down in the world. But when you actually spend time in Russia, you, it's full of ordinary, normal people living their lives with the same dreams and aspirations and struggles towards digital transformation or anything that you might imagine talking about in America. So the world is complex, it's, and I think that's the great value of, uh, of spending time without too much judgment. I, I, I appreciate that. So having a nonpartisan attitude towards this, it's all data, right? I mean, the conversation is just more incoming research. Do you find that uh, you have more, well, I'll say reliable, but maybe more interesting in-person conversations when you're talking to these people and you get at the real nub rather than reading highly produced pieces? Of course. Uh, but, you know, I, I really think the value of talking to people, um, especially experts or people that are obsessively passionate about their field, is not actually the information or, as you say, the glossy produced report version of what's going on. What you're really trying to get from them is the right questions. Because what someone who has spent thousands of hours or years studying a field, what they have that no one else has is they know exactly the unresolved issues. They know the big questions. They know the hard things to look at. And that's what you can't get from Google or reading the Wall Street Journal or even the Harvard Business Review. You don't know what the state of the art problem is. I'm going to quote Leonardo again, having just read that book. His first thing is about curiosity, which, of course, uh, you started by talking about being And it has to curious. be unbounded. Uh, yes. You know, when you look at some of the, the most interesting ideas uh, or the discoveries that have propelled us forward, they're often from the collision of very disparate fields that have interacted in, in, in unusual ways. And uh, that's really the power of this world that we now live in, which is algorithmic, data-driven, is that the same programming approaches which may apply for making a video game could also apply to synthetic biology or 
nanomaterials. We are using the same analytical approaches, but they could be combined and used in a variety of different ways. I think that's a huge theme in your book, The Algorithmic Leader, isn't it? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, my real motivation for writing this book was to try and bring a different, more positive perspective to the question of automation and artificial intelligence. Uh, I mean, the as you say, there's been a big theme for the last 12 months or so about the rise of AI and the, the potential destruction of work and jobs and industries. And people are People are debating whether it's going to be 20% or 30% of jobs that are disappearing, but almost no one is really asking themselves, how do jobs need to change? And what do we now need to become? How do we evolve? And even if you look at the computer revolution, it wasn't that computers took jobs away from people. People with computers took work away from people who refused or were incapable of using them. And I think when we look back in 50 years, we will see this algorithmic revolution in the same way. It wasn't that work was decimated. It's just that there was a percentage of the population that made the transition and there were ones either due to lack of training or lack of desire who weren't able to board that train. I love the way you you said it very quickly, but you said those who made the transition and didn't. As we're seeing industries completely disrupted by the internet, right back to 1999, look at, there's countless examples, right? So is it fair to say that AI is going to have as big or probably bigger an impact on everything that the internet did? Without question. Because AI is a deceptive concept. When you say AI to people, they either think of a Terminator or they think of a red blinking HAL type uh, consciousness. We anthropomorphize uh, these technologies. But what AI really is, is a... Uh, it's a prediction machine. It's about making recommendations. It's about analyzing information and making, helping us make decisions or making decisions for us. If, If AI is evil, it's because somebody has programmed or optimized it to that end. So when you look at it from that perspective, AI almost by definition is designed to augment us. It's designed to make us more efficient, more capable, more perceptive. And that's really the opportunity of how do we look at work again with fresh eyes? How do we look at the value that we add as human beings? How do we work out of all the decisions we make, what are the ones that are deterministic, easily repeatable, designed for automation? And what are the ones where you need machine learning to help you uh, get smarter at seeing patterns that are maybe not visible or are not accessible to ordinary human beings. I'm going to go back to what you said about the unresolved issues. And I I love that you're not telling us what things are going to be like in 50 years, but more what they're going to be in five years. If you were to um, curate a conference, instead of going and attending a conference as the keynote speaker, which is what you do all of the time, if you were going to curate uh, conference and we called it unresolved issues. What would be the top themes that you'd want to go find the smartest people in the world to address? I, I think I would be terrified to host a conference called unresolved issues. I would lit, it would people would see it as a kind of Betty Ford clinic. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if I held it in California. Uh, 
you know, if I was to hold a dream conference, um, I would really try to bring people together to focus on the question of what is our true potential as human beings in the 21st century? What are we truly capable of? Everything in terms of physical abilities to cognitive abilities to the design of our societies. How do we start with a clean sheet of paper and look at some of this stuff fresh? Because one of the biggest traps that I think we've fallen into in the last 20 years is incrementalism. Uh, we, we look at our existing world and we ask ourselves, okay, what would it be like if it was 5% more efficient? Or our internet was 20% faster? Or our device was 25% thinner? We don't look at things again and go, well, what are we really trying to achieve? What is actually our potential? How do we want to live? What is happiness and what is fulfillment? Uh, what is the point of even talking about things like equality when equality is based on concepts of material and asset ownership? So we've kind of got to start again, I think, and it'd be amazing to curate a conference uh, that focused on those kind of bigger questions. If you need help in that, <laughs> uh, let let's me know. do it. Uh, because the idea that you said it earlier, when you say AI, people bring a bunch of baggage to that because they it, the re, the definition of it. And you're right; it is a prediction machine. It's what I've been thinking about for the last ten years. And it's like, how do we use these uh, machines to help us make better decisions? Yet people um, in an increasingly polarized society where there's rhetoric from you know, the right and the left, the, the thing I agree with and the thing I disagree with, whether it's politically right and left, uh, is kind of, it's very upsetting to most people. Um, I'm thinking right now I'm, I'm researching AI and uh, disrupting the hospitality industry. Um, you know, they'll have AIs that check you into the hotel, so we don't need front desk staff. There's going to be, I mean, there's all of that kind of stuff. Um, to the point of finding out what the value we add as humans Kaifu Lee suggested that the thing that the machine can't do is uh, be empathetic. That, I think, and I, I really admire Kaifu Lee, and I thought his last book was brilliant. But I think focusing on empathy alone is to really undersell the value of human cognitive and even emotional ability. You know, the core premise of my book, The Algorithmic Leader, is that to be an algorithmic leader, you need to master two very separate set of skills. One set of skills is about understanding human complexity. So this does mean empathy. It means the ability to be able to recognize and motivate people. It also means the ability to understand abstract concepts like what is a good customer experience. And the point of all of this is that you are bringing human context to automated and AI systems so that you can help calibrate them, you can help train them, you can help guide them because in the end we as human beings are analog and we and you need that context in order to make these systems either just or ethical or even just enjoyable. But that's not enough and, and that's where I think a lot of commentators are underselling us as, as a species. We cannot just rest our laurels on being warm and fuzzy. We also need to take on qualities of machines too. And I guess I summarize this as saying we need to become computational thinkers, which doesn't mean that we need to learn to program. It means that we need to approach making decisions, solving problems, coming up with ideas in a structured and methodological way that allows us to now incorporate data and 
artificial intelligence and automation in the execution of our solutions. And this is an area where you are going to need specialist training and understanding, knowledge of statistics, uh, but it's something that's unavoidable. Okay, so the challenge then is uh, that leaders, from what you just said, we need to master these two skills. And I'm curious if, if education, if the MBAs that are coming out are being presented with these skills. I mean, that's where the leaders are coming from, ostensibly, right? Um, these schools, and they're being, you know, uh, not having an MBA myself, I don't know whether that's good or bad, but um, I, I tend to think that the, they are not the first bastions of forward thinking, that they're... No, uh, well, I mean, education is a huge topic, and we should, we should dive into this a little bit. Uh, the whole system needs to be rebooted for this new age. Yep. But Agreed. just on MBAs, not only I think are MBAs not uh, being prepared for this new world, they will actually need to unlearn what they've been taught. I mean, the whole foundation of an MBA course is often reasoning by analogy. I mean, we do case studies. So you tell people, analyze this case and take away some uh, concepts from that that, that, you, that you then can apply. What does this mean? It means when they join the workforce as leaders, they're always looking for analogies uh, or examples or use cases to justify strategy. And this is a disaster because you, you're telling people come up with an original creative disruptive approach to marketing or engagement. But then your CMO says, look, before we can do anything, we need to find an example of someone else who's done exactly mm. the same thing. And then we wonder why no one does anything new or original. So far more valuable uh, and this is actually one of the tenets of being an algorithmic leader, I, I think, is the ability to reason not from analogy, but from first principles. Uh, when you look at someone like Elon Musk, I mean, let's just leave aside what he does on Twitter, but uh, what really defines entrepreneurs like him and, and Leonardo da Vinci, I guess you could say, is their refusal to take no for an answer. When someone says this is impossible, they go, let's look at the problem again in a new way. If we were to redefine the problem, if we were to break it down into smaller pieces and we were to refactor it, is there something that other people have missed? And in a time when you can automate more of the obvious decisions, then those decisions that remain will absolutely require nonlinear, creative, very different kind of thinking in order to solve them. So some will say that you, you learn by studying others, and I, I get that. I, I appreciate you saying that, but let's you've said reboot, rethink, restart several times since we started this. And you also said having a, a, a methodology, a practice, a process by which you do that, do you articulate in the algorithmic leader how one might actually set about to reboot the way they manage their company? Uh, the... The algorithmic leader contains 10 principles, uh, which are essentially, they're not exhaustive, but they're kind of a, they're, they're a start. And some of them are very practical, others, others are more philosophical, uh, but really they're, they're designed to be provocations for you to look again at the way you make decisions, the way you interact with people. Because what I'm really trying to say is that the idea that uh, if you automate part of a job, the whole job will at some point go away, is one of the founding fallacies of this, of the way we think about AI today. And 
when you the people that I think are going to survive and thrive in this new environment will use this opportunity to take a fresh approach to to their jobs, to their careers, to the way they see themselves. And I think although it's going to be a lot more demanding and it's going to be in some ways more stressful, it's going to be a lot more fulfilling, more purpose driven, and people are going to have a lot more fun working in the algorithmic age than they have in a time when, you know, jobs were more specified, you had to color within the lines, you were hired to do a particular thing. This, I mean, maybe for you and I in particular, this sounds like a nightmare. And I think really for most people, whether you're an astronomer or an accountant, a lawyer or a musician, computation is going to transform those roles in very interesting ways. So I heard in there that the leader needs to be comfortable with nuance, yet at the same time be very comfortable with certainty. Well, actually, the real skill is to be very comfortable with ambiguity. Uh, this really, I call this like, you know, Bayesian thinking in a way. You know, Thomas Bayes was this uh, 17th century mystic who really is the father of probability in, in many ways for us today. I mean, his approaches are used in artificial intelligence. But for me, his real lesson, and you know, he created, he was one of the, his ideas eventually became the Bayesian theorem. But you could summarize it as this, rather than be right, it's better to be less wrong with time. And one of the traps that we have when we're training business leaders, and I see this all the time with my clients and my audiences, is that we coach people not to speak and not to act until they're 100% sure of the facts. Look, they can be data-driven, but they're so worried about collecting all of the data that they are paralyzed. But when you look at very fast-moving, agile organizations like Amazon, you know, Amazon's built on a number of principles, and one of them is disagree and commit. Because what Jeff Bezos says to his leaders is, don't waste my time trying to commit me, trying to convince me of something. If you, if you believe in an idea, even if I don't agree with you, I'll commit to your decision. Because what we want to do is act quickly and then gather information which we can then use to update our view of whether or not this decision is correct or not. That is essentially the difference of someone who's deterministic, who thinks that if this happens, then this should happen, with someone who's actually probabilistic. And so being probabilistic is, is not intuitive, but it's one of those key mental shifts uh, that I think is essential. You know this through your um, dealing with thousands of leaders that organizational change is extremely difficult, extremely difficult. And the, the, just what you have to do, when you have to do it, when should we start? Are we doing it right to your point? Well, we can't change because we haven't figured everything out rather than let's just get going on that. I'm curious if probabilistic thinking, this idea of being able to be comfortable with ambiguity, isn't something we should be uh, working with our fourth graders on. Well, in some ways, fourth graders uh, probably understand this better than us, <laughs> especially uh, if you have a teenage daughter. She's probably more probabilistic than everyone in your organization. And, and what I mean by that is, is that your teenage daughter doesn't have friends. She has frenemies. Cindy is 70% her friend and 30% her enemy, depending on the day and what's going on. So she, your, your daughter has got this very complex um, probabilistic model of her social network that she's constantly updating with time. 
Uh, now, all we need to do is get people to basically understand what your daughter already knows, which is that the world is not black and white and that we have to be comfortable operating in, in, sh in shades of gray and ambiguity. And as data comes in, we need to be able to constantly reevaluate our position, our alliances, our ecosystem, and be okay with that. So that's, that suggests that agile as a term that engineers brought to us, but it's being able to work really quickly is in fact one, it's, it's almost like an agile mindset, right? Well, you know, lots of people know what agile development is. Very few people are actually agile-minded. And, and the latter my is much point. more useful. My point, exactly. Uh, Reed Hastings, who's an incredible algorithmic leader, sure. CEO of Netflix, yep. he, he's said on a number of occasions, the most valuable people that work for him are not people with a particular skill set. They're people who've got a particular mindset. The ability to make good decisions in ambiguous conditions. Look, anyone can make a good decision in a predictable environment. When we were in a more traditional business context where you could make five-year plans and you know industries were fairly stable, it was not hard to be smart. It's a lot, hard to be, a lot harder to be smart today where not only are things changing constantly, but there are new competitors, new business models, uh, new technologies. To do that, as you say, you have to be agile-minded. Two of the people that you've mentioned are also uh, multi run multi billion dollar enterprises, Jeff and Reed, who also both happen to be longtime Tedsters, as it turns out, uh, back to the Monterey days. Um, give us a third name. I like thinking in threes. Who's who's the third person? If I were to be able to get their biography and try to decompose their success as it relates to their ability to embrace ambiguity who would that third person well, be actually i would uh, i would caution from looking at too many rock stars huh? uh, because you know one of the the other messages that i uh, that i've tried to bring into my book and in fact if you take the cover of my book off uh if it's in front of you and you actually look at the hardcover you'll see it's embossed with this complex root pattern and that's a, just a little secret that's actually a rhizome and a rhizome is like the root structure of something like ginger or a weed. A rhizome has no center. There's no sort of central stalk. It's a network. And to be an effective leader, I think, in the 21st century, a big part of it that I think is deeply unsettling, you know, for traditional leaders is giving up your ego, giving up the idea that you are the boss, that you're the one who's going to be the hero riding off into the sunset to save everybody, to make that one decision that's going to transform everything. We are coached from Hollywood to Harvard to, to imagine that the leader is a hero. But actually, a big part of operating in this new environment of real-time information and AI and machine intelligence is to be able to know that sometimes the best decision is to stop making decisions, that the best way to work is to not work but to design work, and the best way to really discover insight is to actually let other people, you know, who are closer to the work, bring that forward. So I, I think the real heroes of the algorithmic age will be ordinary people um, who are empowered and who are able to leverage these technologies to have a more purpose-driven role in our organizations. Which brings me back to the beginning of this conversation which is how, how you stay current, how you stay relevant, how you stay on top of this ever-moving change of, in, in all these worlds. 
And you said it, it's because you talk, you talk to people like a lot. And you just said it's by l- listening to the insights of other people. And I think that thing that you just told us is how you live your life. Yeah, I, I, I live a very extreme nomadic life uh, <laughs> uh, where I travel a lot. And uh, I mean, it's, not, it's true. I'm often close to 300 days a year on the road. And I spend a lot of time talking to very diverse people uh, from big organizations to small startups and entrepreneurs, scientists, even artists. And what I'm looking for in many cases is not a trend or a data point. I'm looking for stories and questions. Uh, I'm looking for those kind of vignettes of human experience because I think that often we are story-driven people and stories bring things to life and they, they, they bring context to abstract concepts. But most importantly, and I think I mentioned this before, I'm looking for the questions that are plaguing other people. Because I think in the questions, you find the path to the things that really matter. Uh, sorry to bring it back to Leonardo, but he says exactly that if you get good at anything, get good at asking questions, which is what I love about the work I get to do. And, and Leonardo is a, is, is a really powerful example of someone whose knowledge and interests spanned uh, disciplines, spanned time scales, uh, conventions, genres. And, you know, when I think really in the end about what the algorithmic age is, is it represents an opportunity for us to break down the the distinctions between professions, between job roles, between full-time versus freelance. We're going to need people that are comfortable existing in the cracks, uh, who can move seamlessly uh, between uh, traditional thinking modes. Because if something can be specified and it can be defined, it can be done by a machine. So the things that can't, we were, we're going to need to become little Leonardos in order to thrive. I want to drop the mic right there, Mike. Like that, that was little Leonardos. That when, I'm going to have a T-shirt made this afternoon. Mike Walsh, this has been a great conversation. I want to thank Big Speak for uh, introducing us and giving us the opportunity you know, to have this conversation. The people that, that listen to this show are the ones who are making the decisions about what people they should put in front of their organizations, in front of their leaders uh, to help inspire them. Uh, clearly, you're one of those guys. Thank you. It's been wonderful being on the show. Thanks, Mike. We at Big Speak appreciate you listening to one of our many episodes. We hope you've enjoyed this exclusive and unique access behind the scenes of the keynote speaking world. Highlights from this episode are available on our website, bigspeak.com, along with the option to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. To learn more about this episode's guest or invite them to your special event, contact us at bigspeak.com.